0: Come and find yours. I'm in to your transmissions. I'm mooning, to be found. And i building rockets. I'm pointing them
3: to the moon. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 701. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, we have sneaked over that 700, now 701. So I do we hope you'll join us? So I'll tell you what's happening in my little world. I'm on the coast, right? So England, Northern England, up there. If you look at a map on the, I'm on the right hand side. Not that kind of far from, say, Scotland, but you know, in the right where Hadrian's Wall is. You know what I mean? I'm kind of right on underneath kind of Hadrian's Wall, and right on the sea. Normally. <clears throat> We skate by winter with a few maybe little cold shruggy days, but not this time. This time we are getting clattered with the, the frosts, you know what I mean? It's been minus four. I know it kind of in the grand scheme of things, I know I've got a friend who lives in Detroit and, you know, their winters are brutal, you know what I mean? Absolutely brutal, but for northeast coast, it is just... Things are just getting, like, iced up where you can't even, you know, can't even open wheelie bins, move wheelie bins, you know what I mean? They're just frozen to the ground. And I've seen a little bit further inland, we're having, like, minus 13 and something like that. But we're kind of minus... Well, one day was minus three, we'll have had a minus four, and it's predicted to go to minus bloody five, you know, on the coast. You know, the salt air normally can, uh, takes care of everything, but not this time. So, from a frigid northeast of England, hello. So, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. The main fiction is The Hunt by Jerry Lean. This story originally appeared in Footprints two thousand and nine. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with looking back genre history. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So jumping into the main fiction, The Hunt by Jerry Lean. Jerry lives in Northern Virginia and originally hails from Seattle. In addition to being an avid reader, she's passionate about horse racing. T collecting art, and Raku pottery. She has work in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Nature, Strange Horizons, Galaxy Edge, Dark Matter, and others. She edited several anthologies for independent presses, is finishing some larger projects, and is a member of the SFWA and the Horror Writers of America. And if you want to go over, see com, Like I say, this story originally appeared in Footprints, 2009. Now this story is narrated by Bob Hall. Bob Hall is a hermit author, podcaster, blogger and social media addict. He loves science fiction, fantasy mysteries, stamp collecting, cactuses, and most of the sciences, geek and nerd. He lives in Serrano Desert with his partner. So, the Starship Sova
4: is very proud present. The Hunt by Jerry Lean. A bright sun illuminates the footprints that lead to nowhere. The hunter deals and assesses them, knowing they don't belong to the prey he seeks, but learning all he can about them anyway. His mate, Zanar would have found these fascinating. So old, so deeply grooved, the steps sang so much without words, just as she did. She hunted it side for half his life as a hunter. She's been dead just as long. He shouldn't still miss her. What's so fascinating about a bunch of old tracks, his client asks. The people who made them aren't going to help you a hunt. If you do not see the beauty of such things, I can't help you. You're not exactly excelling in this hunt. I'm telling you, she went down there. The client, bulky in his rented spacesuit, points toward the blue and white orb that hangs so beautifully in the sky. Zinner would have loved that, too would have taken a snap of it, adding it to her collection of beautiful things. The hunter still has that collection, in an airtight box in a storage locker he's prepaid for his lifetime. The hunter ignores his client's assertions. The man has told him three times where his woman went, and three times he's been wrong. This is why he isn't the hunter. He turns back to the footprints. These are full of stories, They tell of lives gone and people unremembered. Who will remember Xanar when he's gone? Who will remember him? Do they tell you where Lyril has gone? Because I'm not paying you to be nostalgic about a bunch of strangers. The hunter is regretting taking this man as a client. Unfortunately, his honor is in his perseverance. No matter how boorish his client becomes, he'll do what he's been contracted to do. He will hunt. He pushes himself up the low gravity, giving him greater lift than he has on his home world. His hunting suit moves like a second skin as he bounces, following alongside the footprints. and he loved worlds like this. It made them feel young again to bounce and race and laugh. It's been a long time since he laughed. He's not sure he even knows how anymore. He tries a smile and feels the muscles of his face protesting like the lid of a container that won't budge. He bounces higher, landing lightly, a small puff of dust exploding from the impact. The footprints run out, and he turns to go back to his client. This is a waste of my time and money, the man is following awkwardly behind him, and the hunter fears for the integrity of the footprints. We're going to the planet next, aren't we? She isn't there. The hunter holds up his hand when the other man would argue. I am the hunter. I say she's not there. This isn't going the way I planned. You do not plan the hunt. The hunt is, in fact, a living thing. No one plans it, not even the hunter. He follows it, learns from it, is it. But he doesn't control it. The client throws his hands up in what looks like disgust, but it's hard to tell with a suit so cumbersome. He says nothing, just stomps back to the hunter's ship and closes the hatch. The hunter imagines the client trying to start the engines. They're keyed to his own biometrics. Do what he says, he murmurs, then whistles a series of tones, and the engines roar to life. The hunter's headset rings with static. She's down there, I tell you, and I am going to prove it. Then we'll see who the real hunter is. The ship's beacon goes off. It's protesting the command to lift off without him aboard. The hunter feels a surge of satisfaction. This is a good ship. He and Xanar built in all these failsafes. Once she was gone, the ship kept waiting for her to board. And first it made the hunter angry and later just sad. It took him years to finally just reprogram the ship and remove Xanar from its protocols. It felt like a betrayal of her. He's since learned to live with it. Another sequence of whistles allows the ship to take off. Let his client search the planet he so sure houses his woman. He's brought his fate on himself. If it's his time to go, nothing can save him. If not, nothing will take him. The hunter sits down by the footprints, watching as a ship disappears, swallowed up by the poisoned planet that rests so beautifully in the blackness of space. The orb swirls with blues and whites, The planet that Xanar died on was blue and gold, but the cloud patterns swirled the same way. She was brought down in a fight by prey who didn't want to return to the prison they'd escaped from. They were murderers, and they destroyed his life when they killed his mate. The hunter ripped them apart, lost in a berserker rage he'd never known before that moment and has never felt since. He's felt so little since, even now, Sitting alone on this dust ball with only alien footprints for company, he feels no panic, no dread. If he dies today, then he'll join his mate in the afterlife, and they will hunt together forever. That would be pleasant, so he's relatively sure it won't happen. He holds his hand next to the footprint. The walker's foot was two hands long. Or perhaps not. Perhaps the walker wore thick boots like his client does adding length to the print that was not due to flesh. There are no settlements on this moon, but there are buildings, long deserted now, on the red planet. The hunter thinks that's where the woman's gone. Did she think there would be people there to help her? She's piloted her stolen ship well, this Lyril who his clients will risk all to have. She has shown great flexibility of thinking, nothing like a hunter, but still more than his fool of a client has displayed. His headset rings, another klaxon sent by his ship, a distress call this time. He whistles the tone that will bring it back to him. He doesn't know if his client will be on the ship, and he doesn't care. He didn't tell his client to leave him here, most probably to die, and by doing so, the man has lost his right to any courtesy. The hunter sees the ship coming. The blue and white sphere seems to spit it out. The ship appears undamaged, and his assessment does not change as it comes in slowly. He whistles for it to ease down in a place far from the footprints. He rises and walks to his ship, striding around and evaluating it. There are some marks on the door, not blaster residue, not projectile shots. They look more like scratches of primitive weapons. He opens the hatch and sees no sign of his client. Visual, he says. The ship's cameras, placed to capture all angles, display their video on the main view screen. They show him his client opening the door, calling out for Lyra as if she'd simply surrender after having led them so far for so long. His client stands there, hands on hips, turning his whole body so he can see to his side in his impractically clumsy suit. Suddenly he slumps, and Hunter sees an axe lodged in the middle of his chest, something hairy and mottled with sores pulls him out of the ship. His client screams once, then goes silent. But the scene isn't quiet. There's the sound of flesh being hacked off. Of... a feast. The hunter feels sick. He's relieved when he sees the hatch slam shut and the camera switch to external, and what's left of his client is lost to view as a mass of creatures storm the ship. The hunter closes the hatch and flies back to the surface of the planet. From the air it looks beautiful, but he can see by his readings that the soil is full of poison, the water too. Radiation and other contaminants fill the planet, and the ship's computers tell him not to stay on the surface, even in his skin suit, for more than ten minutes. He doesn't intend to linger for even five. He follows the flight path charted by his client, and he passes over the landing spot. He sees the man, or parts of him anyway. One boot remains, and what looks like an arm. He lands near the remains, sends out a hail of blaster fire to cut down anything within range. A nearby bush catches fire, and he doesn't put it out. Let this place burn, if that is fate's wish. He opens the hatch and jumps out, retrieving the pieces he can find and slamming the hatch back down as the creatures that killed his client rush the ship. From the external camera, he can see their faces. They look like beasts, mad things, it's hard to believe they're probably the descendants of people capable of making footprints on this world's barren moon. He sends out another blast of fire, catching most of them up in it. Some scream and run, trying to put out the flames, but others just fall and die. The hunter lifts off and flies too fast out of the atmosphere, but doesn't slow until he's well clear. Then he puts the ship on auto and stores what's left of his client in an airtight box, so it won't stink up the ship. His duty to his client is over, but his hunt resumes. It won't end until he finds his prey. He flies away, onward to the red planet, and the woman who's proven so elusive. The red planet is deserted. No infrared readings light up his sensors, but the woman could be hiding under a thermal blanket. The hunter knows she's here because he found her ship under a camo net that is half frayed. He knows she must be aware he's here. His ship came in loud, and he wanted it that way. Sometimes the hunt is for the stealthy. But this is the end of a long chase, and there's no honor in guile. His prey should know he's here, should lie quaking under whatever is giving her cover. The planet is nowhere near as beautiful as the toxic pit he just left, but he thinks it is related to it. A colony of some sort was here, and it's clear that the settlement did not go peacefully when the end came. Blaster fire riddles the buildings and the vehicles scattered around, but there are no bodies. He wonders if there was a war between the blue and white world and this one, if the colonists here were captured and forced back to the home world. Are their children the things he just saw, or were they meals for those creatures? It takes him a long time to find the woman, much longer than he expects. She's at the edge of the settlement, lying huddled under several thermal blankets, and her air is dangerously low. Through her faceplate, he can see she's beautiful. No wonder his client wanted her back. The hunt is over, he says, and his voice is gentler than he means it to be. Let me go. I cannot. She doesn't plead, doesn't wheedle or cajole or offer him her body as so many others both men and women, have done. Neither does she curl into a bowl, cringing at his feet and soiling herself. Instead, she stands up with great effort, staring at him the entire time, her breath rapid as she holds her ground. The hunt is over, he says again. It must be said three times if the prey will not surrender. I can't go back to him. She pulls the utility tool from their suit's belt. He tenses, ready to knock it from her hand, but she doesn't lunge at him. Instead, She holds it to her air hose. I suggest you do not do that. I won't go back to him. Life isn't worth living if it's with him. His next move is prescribed. She will not surrender, so he must say again that the hunt is over, and then he must kill her. He opens his mouth, but instead of the ritual words, he says, there's not much of him to go back to. She seems startled by his words, but no more than he is. He forces himself to stand tall, to ignore how her eyes gleam the same way Xanar's would have as the sun hits her faceplate. He has the hunter. He has an obligation. He will not falter, no matter what. The hunt is a surrender to my fate, a surrender to the hunt, a surrender to you. She understands his rituals, says the words of surrender perfectly. It is unexpected. He holds out his hand, ready to jerk it back if she's lying and tries to cut his skin suit, but she puts the tool in her belt and holds up her hands. Her steps are heavy with defeat as she walks next to him to his ship, and she lets him fit her with cuffs that he clips to a ring in the back of his ship. "'You know the words of the hunt?' he asks as he tests her bonds. "'My brother is a hunter.' Once the hatch is closed, he eases off her helmet, letting her breathe more easily." and she gulps in air as if her supply was gone, not just low. Unmasked, she looks nothing like Xanar, but still there's something in her amber eyes that reminds him of his lost mate. The hunter leaves her and takes the controls, piloting them back to the moon and landing near the footprints again. What are you going to do? Even if she weren't related to a hunter, she would have heard honor stories about his kind. It's often said that hunts end in death, but that isn't true. All hunts end with him catching his prey, whether they're caught dead or alive is up to them and their fate. His honor demands he try to catch them alive, to bring them back to whatever client has called for them. You know the ritual, don't you, or didn't you pay attention to your brother's stories after he caught his prey? She doesn't answer, and her eyes seem to shine like the cold sun of this world. He looks away, taking a container of what is left of his client and putting it between him and the woman. What's lost is now found. All things are returned to him who has retained me. The hunter hunts. The prey is captured. I give you lyril Our contract is in an end. He bows his hands, holds out the keys to the cuffs, and waits, as is the custom, for the client to take them. He hears the woman shifting as if she's trying to see what's in the box. Where is he? She asks, and fear makes her voice shake. The hunter remains silent, and after the proper time has passed, he unlocks the woman's cuffs and puts them and the key away. It would seem he doesn't want you after all. She rubs her wrists, even though the cuffs couldn't have hurt her over the spacesuit. I don't understand. The hunter points at the box. Open it. She does. Oh. She slams the lid down and the hiss of the seals fill the small space. He thinks she might throw up, but she controls herself. Why didn't you tell me? It's right that you face the man who wanted you. The hunt has come full circle. He nods toward the hatch. I'm going out. Do you wish to see this place? My suit's almost out of air. He takes that as a yes and refills her tank from the ship's stores. Then he takes the box and carries it to the hatch, bouncing out onto the unrelieved gray and white of the moon's surface. Are you going to bury him? No. His people will want to bury what's left of him. They'll be happy he's gone. He wasn't a nice man. The hunter agrees with her, but says nothing. Instead, he puts the box down and opens it. Pulling out his client's boot, he walks to the footprints and let the boot hang over one of them. It's a perfect match. Did he leave those prints? She asked. No, the people who lived on that planet left these. He points to where the horrible world sits. It's beautiful. It's not, but I think it once was. He puts the boot back, sealing up the case, and walks back to the footprints, studying them for the last time. He won't return unless a hunt demands it, and so far, this is the only one that has brought him here. What are you doing? She asks, and the hunter thinks her voice is lovely, even behind the hiss of the air in her suit. What do you see in the prints? I see hope, I see optimism, see how this edge is lighter. Whoever left this was happy, excited, but also not used to this gravity. The side here, a little more pressure right there, as if the walker was getting used to this place. You can see all that in a footprint? He nods and continues his study. The woman walks away to where the hunter has left a footprint just as deep. I don't see the same things here. No, you do not. He learned to walk in this low gravity decades ago, and he has not known hope or optimism for anything but the obligations of the hunt since Zanar died. He's one of the best hunters, and that's had to serve as his entire life for a very long time. What will you do with me? I have a feeling my client would wish me to take you down to the planet and let you die at the hands of the things that killed him. She says nothing, or I could return you to his family. They know nothing of me. My disagreement with him was personal. The hunter knows this. His client insisted on meeting in darkened bars. The hunter checked up on the prey, as he always does. Leryl was the man's mistress, tired of his abusive nature. The client didn't want his wife or family to know. I have a question, the hunter says, leaning in to see her face. If your brother is a hunter, why didn't you send him after your lover? He hurt you, did he not? This man who contracted me beat you. And worse, she turns away. I'm not like him. I don't want to be like him. I just wanted to get away. You thought my client would be merciful. He didn't spend his money lightly and a hunter is expensive. I underestimated how much he would want me back. She stands taller and takes a deep breath that resonates through the speakers in her suit. Are you going to kill me? Because if it's all the same to you, I think I'd rather you just leave me here, next to these happy footprints you find so intriguing. I'd like the last thing I see to be that planet you say isn't so lovely. Her answer is unexpected. It's full of honor and a sensitivity he doesn't expect. He can imagine that Xanar, if she hadn't been a hunter, had instead been chased across five star systems, would have said the same thing. "'What do you see when you look at those footprints?' he asks her. "'I see loneliness,' she points to the footprints he has made. "'I see it there, too. "'I hunt alone.' "'Have you always?' "'That is not your concern. "'Since you may kill me, I believe I can ask.' "'He stares down at the tracks in the gray dust. "'I haven't always hunted alone. "'I'm sorry,' but she does sound as if it's so.' I would rather not die, Hunter, just so there's no ambiguity. Sitting here waiting for my heir to run out is a distant second choice to life. Yes, I know. He turns to go, leaving the footprints behind, leaving her behind. She doesn't try to follow him, and when he turns back, she's staring at the planet. I am under no obligation at this time, he says. The lost has been rejoined with he who was left. The hunt is over. It is now up to him how this ends. With this client dead, the woman is his. He can free her, or he can kill her. He turns slowly, and he realizes she doesn't know this part of the ritual. Perhaps her brother is a hunter who likes only to kill, who never shows the mercy hunters can at time display. What's your name? she asks. I am the hunter. You must have another name. They stare at each other across the footprints. In his heart, his name beats against the walls he's erected since his mate died. She was the last to call him by his true name. In his soul, his spirit wishes to fly again. He could push his heart and spirit back. They're accustomed to losing to his intellect, his will, to the hunter. But he doesn't want to push them back. He whispers, My name is Jadresh. It's a fine name. It's just a name, nothing noble or elegant about it, but his heart is beating it out as if his name is life itself. Jadresh, Jadresh, Jadresh. It doesn't have to be noble or elegant, just yours. I had a mate, he says softly. She died on a hunt. That must be hard for you. I imagine every time you hunt you see her. I have learned to live without her. He can tell she doesn't know what to say to that. He wonders if she had someone she loved, someone before his client, who left a hole in her heart that time refused to fill. "'What now?' she finally asks. "'There's a world full of footprints like these, only mammoth. I was there a long time ago, and still remember the marvel I felt upon seeing them. Zanar said it was the most wondrous thing she'd ever seen. I think I will go back there before I agree to another hunt. I should like to see such footprints.' If you want company, that is. She isn't moving, not edging toward him, not reaching out. She waits, and he loves her in that moment for her quiet courage and her wavering voice. I should like to have company, Laurel. He holds out his hand to her. I must return this man to his family. Honor will prevent me from divulging the nature of the hunt he contracted, since he made it clear he didn't want them to know. Convenient. Sometimes, yes. And then, and then we will go. The two of them on his ship. She no longer prey, but a willing passenger. Maybe some day something more. She moves then, hurrying as if she's afraid he'll change his mind. She should know better. He's safe now, and can travel at his side for as long as she wishes to stay. He's a hunter. Once he's chosen his course, nothing will deter him.
2: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: And there you go. Big thank you. Jerry, thank you so much. Oh, fantastic. And Bob, lovely to have you on, sir. Thank you indeed. So, ims.
1: Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history, and I thought I would wrap up 2022 by giving a tribute to a pioneer of pulp science fiction, Margaret St. Clair, who wrote both short stories and novels, often as Margaret St. Clair, although she also wrote under the pseudonyms Wilton Hazard, and Idris Sebright. Margaret St. Clair was a U.S. author. She was born in 1911 and lived until 1995. She is one of the most anthologized women from the pulp era. Martin H. Greenberg and Ramsey Campbell, by the way, Ramsey Campbell has called her work, quote, startlingly original, end quote, And has argued that her work has, quote, yet to be fully appreciated, end quote. Greenberg and Campbell have collected her writings in The Best of Margaret St. Clair from 1985 and The Hole in the Moon and Other Tales from 2019. And her work is available in many anthologies, perhaps most notably in 2018's *The Future Is Female*: 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women, from Pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin, edited by Lisa Yazek for the Library of America. Margaret Sinclair was also one of the authors spotlighted in the 2019 book Monsters She Wrote The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R Anderson. I covered that book in episode 612, 612 of Starship Sofa. And in that book both Kroger and Anderson point out that if you are aware of Dungeons and Dragons, then you will recognize the science fiction of Margaret St. Clair. Given that her work helped to inspire Dungeons and Dragons, one of my favorite Margaret St. Clair tidbits is that on the back of the 1963 paperback of her novel *Sign of the Labrys*, it says "Women." are writing science fiction, exclamation point. And yes, yes, she was writing science fiction, and so were other women. But today I want to talk about Margaret St. Clair. Born in Kansas, later a graduate from the University of California at Berkeley, she married writer Eric St. Clair and published her first science fiction in Fantastic Adventures with Rocket to Limbo in November 1946. And according to the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, which I always recommend at sf-encyclopedia.com, after her first taste of science fiction in November 1946, she was a publishing whirlwind. By 1950, she had published about 30 stories. And here's something interesting from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction about this period of time, the late 40s to 1950. Quote, Even though this early work seems at first glance conventional enough and obedient to pulp magazine expectations, a singularly claustrophobic pessimism could soon be felt. This work was at times daringly subversive of some of the central impulses of genre science fiction which is to solve problems, to penetrate barriers, to gain control. In St. Clair's central work, these impulses are consistently treated in terms of pathos." Her Idris Sebright era was related to the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, in which she published multiple stories in the 1950s that are more fantasy-oriented. In fact, she is considered to be a pioneering fantasy author as well, and you can find her work in the Encyclopedia of Fantasy. But she would return to her own name for science fiction and for the eight novels that she published. The first, Agent of the Unknown from 1956, which grew out of Vulcan's Dolls from Startling in 1952, is, and I'm going to quote again from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, quote, Perhaps the definitive St. Clair text, packing into its brief compass a remarkably complex plot, whose protagonist only seems to represent the typical hero of space opera, though amnesia typically blocks his memories before the age of 14, and though his actions enable the human species to experience uplift through a genetic leap forwards, it is eventually revealed that he is not a Superman in the making, but a severely limited android, a toy of the god-game maestro known as the Vulcan, who appears in other Sinclair tales, the entrapment of the agent in a plot he cannot understand until too late, his love for a human woman who is soon killed, and his final realization that his puppet actions have released humans into a state far beyond his comprehension, all generate a sense of extraordinary constriction to which the elegiac conclusion of the tale adds a powerful emotional glow." She also wrote other novels, The Green, Queen from 1956, The Game of Neath, 1960, Message from the Eocene, 1964, and Three Worlds of Futurity, 1964. That last one, to be clear, is a collection of short stories, not a novel. Sometimes her works featured women protagonists, sometimes men. All had some kind of speculative ingredient Her later novels, Sign of the Labrys, 1963, The Dolphins of Altair, 1967, The Shadow People, 1969, and The Dancers of Noyo, 1973, included things like underground settings, post-Holocaust realities, apocalyptic scenarios, and emphasized ways that humanity was destroying itself both politically in terms of oppression and injustice and also environmentally with humanity's relationship to nature. Another short story collection, Change the Sky and Other Stories, would come out in 1974. I should also mention that a very helpful work, Margaret St. Clair, Space Frontiers Woman, a Working Bibliography, was published by Gordon Benson Jr. and Phil Stevenson Payne in 1997. It's part of the Bibliographies for the Avid Reader series. Now, it's important enough and fascinating enough that Margaret St. Clair had this long and thriving career. It's also interesting enough and important enough that in appendix in of the Dungeon Master's Guide from 1979, Margaret St. Clair's work gets a shout-out as one of the inspirations for the very creation of the Dungeons and Dragons world. In particular, her novels Sign of the Labrys from 1963 and The Shadow People 1969 get that credit But I must say, Margaret St. Clair has been popping up on my radar repeatedly recently, encountering her story The Inhabited Men again in The Future is Female, in which editor Lisa Yazik points out that St. Clair valued science fiction for leading, quote, human attention into areas of experience that might not have otherwise been explored, end quote. And then, just recently, I was looking at Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson's new book, their follow-up to Monster She Wrote, called Toil and Trouble, A Women's History of the Occult, from 2022. And yes, in a section all of her own, there she is, Margaret St. Clair, the writer who brought Wicca to science fiction. And in this section... Kroger and Anderson talk about the depiction of Wicca and neopaganism in Margaret Sinclair's work. Margaret Sinclair and her husband were both interested in neopaganism, and Wicca in particular, but what seems particularly notable here is how her writing normalized depictions of alternate spiritualities And how she incorporated these depictions, these representations, not as the focus of her work, but as just part of the diversity. And she did indeed depict diversity in multiple ways in the world she created. And Kroger and Anderson focused particularly on the novel The Sign of the Labras. Remember, this is one of the works credited as being an inspiration for Dungeons and Dragons as well. And I want to read you just a short section from Toil and Trouble about this novel. Quote, in Signs of the Labras, St. Clair created a post-apocalyptic world in which people are still reeling from a pandemic caused by the proliferation of various yeasts. People such as the main character, Sam Sewell, live in underground bunkers, avoiding one another for fear of catching or spreading illness. When a government agent demands that Sam give up his friend, Despoina, the head of a resistance group whose members claim they can use magic, Sam is confused because he has never met this woman. He reluctantly leaves his routine and goes in search of Despoina and her group through the maze-like subterranean levels. Along the way, he learns more about what happened to society and what remains of it. St. Clair describes Despoina and her comrades as Wiccans, end quote. They go on to describe the authenticity of this depiction, and then they go on to say, quote, in St. Clair's fiction, her witches usually have day jobs, and they live in her fictional worlds without much, if any, surprise on the part of the other characters. In Labras, for example, Sam meets a scientist in the lower levels who helps him on his quest. That scientist worked in a laboratory in the before times, but she also is a part of Despoina's coven. She flows seamlessly from scientific experimentation to the craft and back thereby illustrating how Wicca can become the spiritual part of a practicing witch's otherwise ordinary life. These characters also work individually and together with their coven to protest the government system and power, both before the pandemic, when they saw that atomic annihilation was possible, and post-pandemic, when humankind has fractured even more into despair and the rise of a police state is imminent. And that is probably one of the most striking things about St. Clair's fiction. While she weaves her interest in pagan religion throughout her works, to varying degrees, depending upon the story she is telling, those interests become a part of the surrounding story, and part of her character's accepted everyday lives. There is nothing shocking in St. Clair's work when a woman identifies as a witch. For St. Clair's characters, mundane domesticity can coexist with fantastic creatures, complex AI, warring corporate factions, and magic. This multi-genre grab bag of stories may not be easily classifiable, but it may have been St. Clair's attempt to portray the complexity of our world as it was and as it could be." So, I found that to be very interesting in terms of representation and in terms of different voices in science fiction. I'll admit I'm not an expert on 20th century neo paganism, so I found the discussion there in the book very interesting, including the ways that Sinclair was even subversive there in sort of questioning uh, heteronormativity in her depictions of futuristic practices within the craft. And I also thought it was interesting as an insight, too, into the way that the context for her work also then became context for other works, like Dungeons & Dragons. But the upshot is... Margaret St. Clair has never been off the radar, but she is most definitely on the radar now for those who care about science fiction, those who care about fantasy, and those who care about genre and women writers. And of course, post apocalyptic themes, pandemic and post pandemic themes, and environmental themes very timely as well. So the moment seems opportune to discover or revisit some of the work of Margaret Sinclair. And just to recap, I do recommend checking out her entry in the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, that's sf-encyclopedia.com, her entries in Monster She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Science Fiction, and Toil and Trouble, A Women's History of the Occult, both by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson, the former from 2019, the latter from 2022, and you can also check out her work in *The Future Is Female*: 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women, from Pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin, edited by Lisa Yazek for the Library of America. And oh, before I forget, fresh off the press is Volume Two of that collection, *The Future Is Female*. More Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women, Volume 2, The 1970s. Also edited by Lisa Yazig for the Library of America. This is so new that the copyright says 2023 on it. So I feel a bit like a time traveler holding it in my hands in 2022. All right, so there you have it, my friends. I hope this was of interest, and I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we gather together again to take another look back at genre history. Until then, happy holidays, and may your new year be fantastic. Thank you.
3: Oh, hear me? Thank you. Now, listen, hear me. Amy, Amy, Amy! I have not received my Christmas card. Now I know, I know, Amy would have sent that in November for us. You know what I mean? But we have got the most kind of horrendous postal strikes going on at the moment. So all I'm, all I'm thinking Amy, is stuck in postal strikes because I've ordered something from my coffee machine in on the fifteenth of November, and it still hasn't arrived, and it's just stuck in. There's kind of backlog of postal strikes every other day. We've got a postal strike right up now until Christmas, so it's horrendous, to be honest. But anyway, Ames, Merry Christmas, and a Merry Christmas to all of you there. If that's your bag of fish, until next time. Just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening.
0: Tuning into your transmissions, I'm mooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through?